What can be learned from a story woven out of fragmented moments of joy, pain, and blissful awareness? I wrote my first book, Flesh Mapping, in 2013. It was an invitation into co-creating a pedagogy, a way of learning through our shared narratives of plays and politics, a way of mapping the injuries of the material, emotional, spiritual impact of all our many journeys of growth. Some may call it struggle, forced poverty, displacement, hunger, and war. As a child raised in war, I've learned many lessons. And in the art of living, I'm inviting some of my heroes some of the people who walk with me, who have taught me to walk in beautiful ways, to see co-creation, to see community as our immunity to pain, to suffering, to wanting. Welcome. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson, and this is The Art of Living. I am delighted to be joined by author and journalist Brandon Morant. She's the author of Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising. Brandy is also an award-winning Cree, Iroquois, French, multimedia journalist from Treaty 6 territory in Alberta. Among her many awards over a decade of recording on indigenous oppression in North America, she has won two National Native American Journalism Awards in 2022 for her work in Al Jazeera and English, I am so delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Tanse, it's a pleasure to be here, Sylvia. Thank you. Many people listen to the news and hope that the news will tell us stories that are really important. And, you know, we have had over two years of constant fear about pandemic. But in the midst of all this, many things are happening. You know, we have had war against the Wasuwet'en people here in Turo Island, in what we call British Columbia, unceded territory of the Wasuwet'en people. They're being under war, you know, in the midst of pandemic. In the midst of pandemic, we've had women disappear and murder. And I, I wonder, how have you as a journalist been reading this time and what's important for us to know to pay attention right now in the past you know couple of years with the pandemic um you know it's been a you know uncertain and you know chaotic and frightening time for you know the world however when it comes to the stories that i cover as a journalist which is regarding indigenous human rights and, and human rights violations it's the status quo um, in regards to um, the the apathy and the indifference that you know mainstream society uh, continues to um, perpetuate, which in turn perpetuates the continued violence you know that our people are experiencing. And I try uh, in my work, you know, to push forward these stories as much as possible. And that's why I left, you know, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation when I was working there, the CBC and and others to branch out and become a freelancer because I 
wanted these stories to get beyond the borders of so-called Canada and to the world in the hopes that the world would really start to learn about the different atrocities that are happening here because Canada really has this facade that it's a, a just and you know champion of human rights uh, country, but um, that only applies you know if you are uh, mostly a white you know settler Canadian um, citizen. It doesn't apply. Um, you know, to um, Indigenous or BIPOC, you know, populations. And so, you know, our people are literally, um, you know, dealing with trauma after trauma. And uh, our women and girls and even our men are living through, you know, a genocide against their lives. Um, our people are being uh, murdered and being taken in in the, what they call the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit genocide, and it just, it hasn't slowed down. And so when you say, how am I transversing that? I'm working hard to bring this, um, you know, out of the the veal of this facade, of the veal of, you know, darkness. And you mentioned that I had, you know, won these Native American Journalism Association Awards and I also won one of the highest awards for journalism in the awards this year, which is an Edward R. Morrow Award. That was specifically for covering missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I went to New York City and I accepted that um, proudly and not for myself, but because of the need, the urgent need for, um, you know, these stories to be uh, taken in, you know, by the world in order to help um, stop this genocide. And so, you know, we just, we just keep pushing. And I think that we are making headway slowly. We had the graves of our children that were unveiled to the world, you know, a year and a half ago and um, the world acted shocked um, that this was going on here in this country. But I really think that that helped open the door more for an international audience to really, you know, see what's going on. And um, I think that the state and all of the different systems that, um, you know, are contributing, you know, to these inequality and and, and this violence, this colonial-based system, I think that they are, um, you know, starting to, you know, feel that pressure. You know, one of the... um interesting stories that we've covered is that of um, indigenous children who survive residential schools and many people don't realize that the schools were open for 150 years that the last one only closed in 1996 and that the countless numbers of people who have come forward about sexual assault, of abuse, of the children that die trying to escape the schools, and the trauma that that endures. Like now we know that trauma affects mm-hmm. not just you, but also your progeny, right? It it affects yourself. Yeah. It tra- it tra- it changes who you are, and on top of that, we are asked to heal. But in order to heal, what we know is that you need safety. You need a space that feels Mm. safe. And indigenous people have not had that. You know, it's legislation after legislation that displaces people, that, you know, denigrates their whole being, you know, whether it's by the kinds of stories that we hear cover. So 
Um, when it comes to women, it seems particularly precarious because women lose their status, you know, as uh, <laughs> it has been such an easy thing to just lose your identity. Yesterday you were part of the community, now you're not because the government just suddenly declared that you no longer belong. Can you talk about how does this make not only the precarity of women, but also the susceptibility mm. to them being exposed to violence and crimes such as the serial killer that's on the loose? Let's take it back to when, you know, European settlers first, you know, came here to Turtle Island and the, the, the Europeans operated in a, you know, patriarchal uh, system. Many if not most of the indigenous tribal nations here operated via a matriarchal system and their, you know, the decision-making and um, the leadership of the different communities were equal between men and women. And when settlers came here, they imposed their, um, you know, patriarchal ideologies onto the indigenous tribes and, and stripped you know, that um, power from Indigenous women and girls because our people were heavily oppressed and herded onto concentration camps called um, reservations and given rations of food and then having their children, you know, uh, stolen from them uh, to attend these houses of whores called residential schools. And if families tried to intervene, they were literally threatened with arrest and jailed. So oftentimes the, the, the police would um, go uh, with these priests um, to get the children, you know, right from their homes. And everything that, um, you know, this, this snowball effect of, you know, all of this um, oppression that was put upon our people um, is reverberating to today because we had, after the residential school system, we had the what they call the 60s coup was taking their children, you know, away uh, again from the families and placing them into foster care, into non-native homes. And a lot of the times, you know, they were being taken away because the families were, you know, completely um, torn apart from, you know, experiencing these these abuses of the residential school system and, and this intergenerational trauma, you know, that you're talking about. And you know, trying to recuperate from that and not having the resources or the tools to heal instead of providing and offering that the children were taken. And then we have the continued violence, right, from the police that started way back then that continued to target our people. And interestingly, um, or actually ironically, the majority of um, women that are in the prison systems in this country are Indigenous women, and in fact, Indigenous women make up uh, more of the population in the prison system than Indigenous men. And so, you know, when that power was taken away um, and these new um, systems, you know, came into place, those systems were designed to exploit from the beginning to exploit and extract from the stealing of the lands and the resources to the stealing and the raping, you know, of our women and our children. And all of this um, is, is very much connected to what is going on today because you had the continual uh, degradation and the dis disposability of our women that 
is so, so systemic, you know, in all of the systems and all of the mindsets of this country that, you know, this has contributed to this, this genocide that has been going on for years and that, you know, the numbers are, are not like, you know, slowing down. It's, it's absolutely insane. And so you have to understand, you know, from a broader context, how it's all of these different things are connected, but our women are stepping back in to their power and their place, returning to those matriarchal um, systems of leadership and community. And we're starting to see that, which brings me, you know, hope for the situation that we're in. You know, there is so much lost in the language. And uh, when, when we think of language, I often think about worlds, you know, um, in so many ways, learning English was a way into a world I could have, have known otherwise. And mm. it's, it's the same for, you know, I, I, I've, English is not my first language, it's actually my third language. And, um, but yeah. I, I think about the way that many indigenous cultures, languages are very rich in verbs, you know, um, it's a world that's alive and there's a certain enliveness in, within the language. And, and when you take children away for the sole purpose of dispossessing them of their culture, their language, their mm-hmm. ways of seeing, their ways of knowing themselves, um, what it what that is is a genocide you know and we yeah. we've been very shy in canada to say oh it's a genocide oh it's not or we say well it's maybe a culture gen- it's genocide you know yeah. and, and so to speak of genocide is not very polite at the dinner table perhaps but it's so necessary because until we realize that we live in a death culture you know, one that is wow. extractivist, that's constantly pillaging and killing the earth. We know, we now know that there's like literally eight inches of soil, topsoil that nourish, that nurture every life, right? That that's the food. And once you start making dead zones by putting so many chemicals, you know, we're literally killing the land. We're literally killing yeah. ourselves in the process. So... I wonder if you could maybe talk about uh, what it means for us to not only reclaim ourselves, as you say, as you know, to see the warrior in rising, to, to see ourselves rise up out of the ashes, literally, but literally creating life in our path. Mm, yes. You know, as uh, women, as as Iskew, Iskew, which is, uh, you know, a, a woman in the Cree language, we, we have the ability to give life. We are life givers and we are sacred in that and always have been. Every woman in this world is sacred. Um, every woman in this world um, is under threat and some, you know, more than others. And there are revolutions that we see, you know, happening at various stages. And, you know, one of the ones that the world has recently been watching is the one in Iran, uh, where the women there are, you know, rising up against oppression, rising up against death, rising up to stand for life. And 
um, when I am out there covering these different stories, you know, for land defense and, and protecting the earth and, and the water systems that nourish, um, you know, all of the different beings, you know, on this earth, it is the women that are on the front line everywhere that I go. And I just think that it's a natural instinct because, you know, we, we view the earth as a life giver, as our mother. And because we are mothers, we inherently stand to protect her and to protect our children and all of our future generations. Unfortunately, coinciding with everything that is happening to our mother earth, that same violence is happening to our women. However, our women are so strong and so powerful that that cannot stop the death, the violence, um, all of the inequity, all of the oppression, all of the uncertainty. Through all of that, our women are still rising. Our women are still fighting. And they're not fighting, you know, with weapons of traditional warfare, such as guns and bombs and and violence. Our women are fighting with their voices and their love, and they're literally putting their bodies on the line. One of the most beautiful images that always inspires me is there was a protest against fracking in Mi'kmaq territory, and there is this woman with one single feather, and she just, mm. you know, stands in front of the tanks. And and I always, I feel, um, I feel the energy return to realize that we are all connected. You know, we are. Colonization has been fracturing life for so long for 500 years 540 years if you really want to be literal um but but i also know that it didn't life didn't start there you know we were thriving before then and we will thrive again the you know indigenous people all over the world have had prophecies about you know the end yeah. of this time right and many people thought when the mayan people were talking about the end of the world is like it's ending no it meant the end of this cycle you know and yeah. so to realize that we move in cycles of life nothing is ever static nothing is ever you know nothing I- even though it may seem like it's been going on for long it cannot be yeah. permanent <laughs> you know and i believe and i believe that 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 we are in that transition because before a new life cycle begins you have the birth and the birth is pain the birth is the struggle. And I think that we are in the stage of that, you know, that final push and it's the hardest, but what is going to come out of that? I pray for and hope for is the liberation, you know, of our people and the, you know, the reconnecting of humanity, like you said, that has been fractured by this beast of colonialism, you know, because I think that we are so separated all around the world, but 
when it comes down to it, we are all human beings. We have our cultures, we have our nations, and we have our languages. But we are all connected. And I think that that was a goal of colonialism to create that disconnect and to um, divert away from a lot of those connections and what really matters. And what matters is our you know, um, our connections, you know, to the life sources, you know, on this earth and, you know, different things like that. But I mean, it's excruciating at times, you know, I'm involved in this work, um, on a continual basis and I'm, you know, witness to the, you know, the constant, um, impacts and, and tragedy that our people, you know, are experiencing, you know, but, when we put it in the viewpoint of, you know, this, this new life cycle that our people, you know, have believed and prophesied um, about is on the horizon. It makes it a lot more easier to try, you know, to endure. And I just pray that all of humanity would come together in this and that, you know, this, this this control and 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 the deception of you know all of this colonization would be completely shattered and that we could come you know back back into our own and as you said the the birthing also requires us to be in it to be committed to the pushing to be committed to mm. to birth the dream, right? Um, the Aymara yeah. people said, if you want to see what you're dreaming about, look around. Why are you creating? And um, we are born into the dream, according to the Aymara people. And in many ways, you can see that a new dream is afoot. You know, you're seeing it everywhere. And no matter how much they try to silence the stories, indigenous people knew children had gone missing we knew yeah. thousands of them were missing we knew we know they are and the graves that have been found are just you know the tip of the iceberg you know but we know that there yeah. are so many children still out there who have been buried without a proper burial without a proper ceremony we know that there are mothers who wept and wonder what happened to their babies till the day they die and and that's unjust and if that's unjust yeah. for my community that's unjust for anyone you know and so i think i feel in my heart that it means being willing to make ourselves uncomfortable, you know, in yes. the process because we can change the world by being safely tucked away in our cocoons at home <laughs> and hoping that everything will change just because we wish it and we pray for it. Prayer is good. We do need to pray and we need to be, you know, lean on faith instead of fear. And yet, yeah. we also need to be present. We also need to show up. So, as you have been modeling for us and presencing for us the importance of not only noticing, but speaking about it and sharing with mm. others um, the stories that affect us, right? The story of the missing women. You know, there's over 5,000 missing women. Where are they? You know, we have serial killers that go for decades you know and yeah. even though the police knew about it the victims were not arrested for 
over a decade they were murdering mm. people and nothing happened and now um you know we have another serial killer in winnipeg and you know we're the idea that i want to to talk about the response the city had for why yeah, yeah they released the, they, they stopped searching <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, the police, the Winnipeg police um, told the families of uh, the two women that they believed were in uh, one of the landfills that they believed it was not feasible, that too much time had passed and there were a number of different barriers such as, you know, you know, tons of different clay and different things mixed into the garbage that uh, they believed that they you know, wouldn't be successful in, you know, finding um, their remains. But, you know, these these families, and particularly the two daughters of Morgan Harris, who was 39, who was a victim of this serial killer, whom I will not um, give the honor of saying his name, um, they, you know, within days of learning that their mother was slaughtered, and the day after that the police told them that they would not search the landfill for her, they are 20 and 21 years old, and they went straight to Ottawa, and they went straight to uh, Parliament Hill and demanded that the federal government step in to help to provide the resources and to pressure the Winnipeg police to find their mothers, to bring them home, and... Um, you know, to do whatever it takes. And, you know, their their pleas, which are horrendous, that they had to do this in front of, you know, international media to, to plea for the, you know, the remains of their mother, um, you know, they created enough of an uproar um, for the feds to, you know, offer the support and for the Win- Winnipeg police to, in turn, um, work with the city of Winnipeg to, shut the landfill down temporarily while they consider what their options are. That doesn't mean that they're going to search, but, you know, there's been experts that have said that it could be feasible. There are cadaver dogs, you know, by the way, these dogs are being used across the country um, in various communities to sniff out the remains of indigenous children that died in residential schools and, you know, some of them are decades and decades old and they are trained to actually even, you know, sniff out the most minute, minute, um, um, you know, smell of bones. And so these, these, these families and these girls are not taking no for an answer. And many have said, what kind of a message does this send to the world about the value of our women and to um, killers that, um, you know, are, you know, stalking our women that they can just take them out and leave them in a landfill and nobody is going to search for him, for them, you know. And so um, it, it does tell you a lot. And a lot of people wonder if they were white women, if they were um, wealthy people, would the police, you know, put in that effort and resources to search for them? So I think that there's just a lot of... Um, Gosh, symbol, symbolism and parallels between this this horrific situation of these, you know, serial killers, and who knows how many more serial killers are out there. He just happened to be caught. But parallels between this, you know, what our women are facing and how our women are viewed as disposable and as trash. 
And the structures, the conditions that make people vulnerable to this, the extreme poverty that indigenous yeah. women are forced to live with, the, you know, that the inhumanity of that extreme poverty is really, I mean, there are resources with still no potable water today in the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there is like so, so many factors stemming, like I said, from the moment that, you know, um, Europeans set foot in these territories, you know, that are still happening today that, yes, put our women in these more vulnerable um, situations to be targeted. But there is also a just an evil, racist, rampant mindset that exists, you know, within this country about the value of our women. And so these people that carry out these violence against our women, this serial color specifically targeted for indigenous women. They weren't just random women that he took out on the street. He specifically thought that it was okay and that he had the right to take out the lives of four native women within a three month period. And that tells you so much, you know, about the deeply, deeply systemic sickness that we have going on that needs to be uprooted, that needs to be talked about, and that action needs to be taken on because people, um, you know, there, there are 231 calls for justice that were released in June of 2019 from the National Inquiry into this crisis that laid out the blueprint for how to go about stopping this genocide and little to nothing has been done wow thank you so much for all the work you do for all the ways that you continue to not only call people to the fire because it's one thing to say i'm an ally i'm an ally and to know all the right words to say and it's another one to be a co-conspirator against the empire. Yeah, well, the thing is, I mean, you know, I, you know, people often say to me, like, you know, it's it's not as often anymore, thank God, but I have been told by other journalists or, you know, um, different people in the industry saying, well, like, you know, you can't tell these stories, you're indigenous, or, you know, you can't be, um, you know, attached or involved. And I say to them, well, you know what? Like, I absolutely am involved when it comes to these human rights violations there is no you know other side and there's literal lives at stake but i have to say that i i do have hope when i see these girls these young daughters of this murdered indigenous woman morgan harris when i see them when i saw them do what they did and go straight to the top of the power structures of this country and to shake that up and to not stand down and they still aren't standing down, that gives me inspiration. That gives me hope. And the hope is in our people. The hope is in the people. The hope is in the women. Morgan's daughter said, Cambria, she said, the fire has been lit and no one is going to put it out. And that hi, is... hi. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I feel that's a powerful statement to complete interview i think that's a beautiful way to remember that as long as we're standing as long as the women are here as long as we refuse to look away 
and pretend it's not happening because it's not happening to us, there is hope. And um, absolutely. And and for me, it's an active hope. It's not like a, I pray for hope, but I I do it. <laughs> I make hope happen by my actions, oh. by the ways I take steps every day. Oh, so beautiful! Thank you. Hi, hi. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for being with us. How can people access your book? How can people learn more about your work? Yeah, so my book is called Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising, and they can get it at any bookstore. It's available on Amazon, and it's available on Audible. I actually narrate it myself, and um, I publish with various um, you know, media organizations, they can follow my social media, Twitter at Songsters28 or Instagram at Be Morn Stories. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Sylvia. This has been a really powerful interview, so thank you for all the work that you do. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Art of Living. I'm an education consultant and artist, authored, For more information about upcoming events, workshops, retreats, please reach out to sylvierichardson.com. Until next time, remember to be playful, to celebrate joy, and to allow love in all your co-creations. You'll never have to wonder where the groove went. The groove is you.